Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Hinserling, and you are listening to Watch This List Unplugged. Today, I have a very special guest, Adam Trainer, who is going to be discussing his comfort films with us. He is Australian, uh, which makes him very special. It's the very special in the very special guest. And he has picked a film that is also Australian, which I have very many feelings for. Adam, welcome. How are you doing? You are 15 hours ahead of me. So it is uh, 9.49 p.m. You said you were 15 hours. What? Well, there's there's 24 hours in a day, Amy, and uh, we're exactly opposite. So that never mind. makes it 12. It's impossible okay. for you to be I, 15. It's a good thing this isn't a maths podcast. Because <laughs> I already would have failed. I guess so, but that's okay. I won't hold that against you. What I will have ever is this very special, very Australian. Is that shorthand for and knowing uh, how you felt about one of these films uh -huh. that I'm just a weirdo? Is that what you're getting at? What was your term? Uh, there was like a, what did you say you were? Like a something weirdo. You said this on one of uh, my your comments. Oh, confirmed Would you call weirdo. Yourself? What? Confirmed weirdo. Confirmed weirdo. Okay, so you yep. are a self-proclaimed, like, you've already referenced this. So you put that in my brain, okay? that That's not that's not organic. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, I, I wear that badge with pride. Yes, and I have a special place in my heart for Aussies. I do. Because I appreciate how direct uh australian people are as well as just extremely like brutally honest at all times well there's gonna be plenty of that today <laughs> don't, yeah. don't worry <laughs> but the thing that the thing that baffles me is uh that your the accent and the tone is quite cheerful uh so they could say something very scathing but with an upbeat sort of Ness. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Why is that, Adam? Well, I mean, just trying to be polite, I guess. If you don't <laughs> have any good news for someone, you might as well deliver the bad news with a, a, a smile and, uh, you know, a chipper attitude. <laughs> I, yeah, but what, but it's just an odd combination because I've seen this happen now multiple times in films. Like someone will deliver something that's like very harsh but they sound so like happy about it we might get into this a little bit later but i, mm. I mean i think there's definitely an outsiderness to mm. australians like we feel i think we're, we're self-proclaimed outsiders and mm -hmm. so we feel as though we're always maybe there's all, always a sort of combative aspect but we've also been you know colonized and just left here in the you know harsh sunlight just to sort of wither and dry up and we're all isolated from the rest of the world so we just kind of have to make do this is mm. our lot this is our lot yeah. so we might as well you know do you well find... have, a, have an upbeat attitude about it do you find that you are interacting more often with other Australians or are there a lot of Americans there? Like what's the ratio of where you live at least? I don't know any, any Americans here. None. There's none. No. Nope. Uh, 
I mean, there, there are a few. I know uh, maybe there's one or two, but that's of, okay. You know, the hun- yeah. hundreds of people that I interact with. Okay, so they're and all are, they're literally a, all Aussies. We are a country of migrants. Um, mm-hmm. There's obviously you know two hundred odd years ago with the first migrants um, who came and colonized the country, and there's been a lot of migration from Europe uh, in the mid twentieth century, and since then, uh, I mean, we're very close to Asia, so there's a lot of Asian migration. Um, yeah. Uh, which is why every Australian town has a, a Chinese restaurant in it, and we'll get into that uh, a bit later. But yeah, so th- there is a lot of cultural diversity here. But mm. Yanks, nah, nah, mate, nah, mate. Okay, but but in your uh, Adam and I were talking about this before we started recording, and mate is not uh, considered a uh, like term of endearment as much as another no, word that it, we're not going to say it can be it can be used in a range of different ways it's very malleable yeah okay because when british people say mate they definitely mean like friend right for sure i think we sort of use it almost as a, a punctuation in a way like mm. yeah mate nah mate you could just say yes or no but we have to chuck a mate on the end there just to I make know, sure just you know t- that we've finished what that we're finished talking Uh, I am very fascinated by all of these things uh, and could talk about them for a long period of time. So we're going to move on. But I I do want to say that Adam uh, chose very interesting comfort films, one of which is uh, definitely decidedly not. So I am looking forward to Adam's case, case for comfort, comfort case, comfort defense. Uh, but we're going to save that one for last. So, Adam, your first one is your nostalgic uh, classic Labyrinth, directed by Jim Henson. Came out the year I was born, 1986. I did not see it until a couple of days ago for the first time. Uh, tell me what it was like growing up with this movie and why you love it so much. Yeah, well, look, all three of these films I chose for different reasons and different types of comfort. and. Mm-hmm. With this one, uh, certainly it was a film that I saw as a kid. Uh, it was always kind of there growing up. But I guess the other element of it is, I think, a great way or a great marker of comfort or one of the things that we find comforting when we think about film and film culture is stars, spending time with people that you love and know and you know their career really well and They've always kind of been there. And uh, for me, David Bowie is that. Um, so, yeah, I've got a, a very long uh, history with Bowie. His music was sort of always, just kind of always there, always around. And then I guess as kids of the 80s, with this film, which had certainly some cultural impact, it was a reasonable hit, um, and it was just kind of became part of the cultural lexicon. Um, Bowie was always for kids. Bowie was always the guy in Labyrinth. And then as you Mm -hmm. get a little older and you start to listen to his music, you realize, oh, wow. Okay. There's a massive career here. And so I guess I want to put forward this idea that when we think about movie stars or we're watching movie stars, like for example, when you watch, uh, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, 
you're also mm-hmm. watching Tom Cruise in Top Gun and Maverick, or you're also watching him in Jack Reacher. You know, like the a, a star's career spans more than just that moment that you're engaging with, and so you're bringing all of those meanings and all of that personal collateral to uh, use another Tom Cruise reference um, to Good job. each instance. Um, and so for me, when I watch Labyrinth, I'm also watching David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth. And I'm also watching David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust or uh, as the Thin White Duke or as any other sort of iteration, I guess. Mm. Um, and I actually, I, I wrote my honours thesis on David Bowie and I used auteur theory to look at how you can translate uh, an artist's creative output from one medium to the other. So basically translating from music to screen and how, like, let's use Labyrinth as an example. Jareth the Goblin King is a very otherworldly figure and um, there's a mysticism and there's, uh, you know, um, a fantastical otherness to him. And that very much comes on off the back of things like Ziggy Stardust, who was, and you know, for those who don't know, an alien rock star that Bowie created uh, in the early seventies and Thomas Jerome Newton, who was the character that he plays in the man who fell to earth, who is literally an alien. And so Bowie's always been this otherworldly creature for a lot of people. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that comes to, he brings that to what he's doing in Labyrinth for me. So as, as a, okay, so you're like, besides that you are a massive Bowie fan, which you can show us your shirt, Adam. I know that you want to, for those of, <laughs> for those of you, you who are watching the video. Uh, yeah. And here we go. I had, it was a toss up between two t-shirts. So there you go. You get both of them. Uh, yes. I love when people anyway, bring memorabilia. I've got a bit more, but that's all right. Oh, you have a bit more what? Not, not more Bowie. Oh, well, I got plenty of Bowie oh. memorabilia, but I'm not going to bore you with that. Okay. Okay. So what, what other than Bowie, uh, what about Labyrinth do you find sort of relaxing? Like what, what is it about well, it that it seems, is it, is it pure nostalgia for you or do you watch it now and it just puts you at ease in some other way? How yeah, would you compare well, I, how you sure. feel? So I watched it the other night um, mm-hmm. when I was coming down with COVID actually. I didn't realize I had COVID at the time and I was feeling pretty crummy and put this one on mm. because I was prepping for the pod, but it actually really, I, I just had a great time. Um, look, <laughs> it's a, it's a journey. Uh, and look, I will say this about all three. I think there's a through line for all three of the films for sure. that I have chosen here. Well, what do yes. you think the through line is, Amy? Well, I, I feel like we should say that, save that for the end, right? Because otherwise okay, nobody's, sure. nobody's going to know what the other two are right now. No. But there definitely is a through line. Through line? Sure. My best uh, accent there. Uh, Sorry, I got to get that in a couple line. of times. Through line. A through line? Through line? Uh, there definitely is one in my uh, estimation. Mm-hmm. But we will see if you and I are aligned in our impressions there. Sure. See if they line I'd be up. curious. Say that. Uh, but go ahead. Okay, yeah. You're talking so, about it being a journey. 
yeah, it's a, it's a quest. Look, it's a simple quest storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we don't need to get it too. I don't really like to get bogged down by plot. I plot plot really bores yeah. me. But the basic concept mm-hmm. is Sarah is a teenage girl who's charged with looking after her baby brother. Doesn't want to do it. She's kind of a brat. She <laughs> is lives her kind life of. in a fantasy world, and she calls upon the goblin king to come and take her baby brother away which he does and she spends the rest of the film trying to realizing she's made a terrible mistake and trying to get her baby brother back and she has to pass through a labyrinth to get to jareth the goblin king's castle and yeah rescue her brother and uh so I, i i wrote some notes i summarized this as one girl's coming of age at the hands of David Bowie's pack jodpers haphazardly aided by a bunch of Muppets. <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> it's a great, that's but, a great summary. Because we have uh, to, yeah. we have to mention it. The costume, you know, David Bowie's costuming in this is something that everyone always mentions. So let's get uh, it out of the way. Yeah. Go ahead and mention it properly. I know that everybody was mentioning his. Unmentionables. Yes. And uh, also, uh, this was done by Henson and George Lucas. So there is this um, element of what, you know, practical effects that are really cool, a sense of adventure uh, that is there. That's kind of a wholesome uh, adventure with a little bit of a dark edge to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, yeah, it reminded me of uh, Star Wars a little bit. In okay, terms sure. of like that, it's you know fun. Um, yeah, but well, there's this is those a... Henson uh, puppets. There's the Henson puppet aspect, which you mm-hmm. know, obviously yeah. had uh, a lot in Return of the Jedi only a few years earlier, for sure. I really love the mm-hmm. production design. For me, the production yes, design of this film is super tactile, and these characters, mm. a lot of these characters, Hoggle, for example, who's the little uh, the I don't know what you would. Um, what type of character he is. He's just a... a, a like a gnome? Some, I guess so. Yeah, lives in the labyrinth yeah. and uh, assists Sarah in uh, on her quest. Um, mm. But he's just so... Uh, he's so textured. Um, his, you know, his skin and his hands and, you know, he's a puppet uh, and all of the puppets, a lot of um, sort of yeah older male uh, characters actually that she sort of mm-hmm. comes up against the you know the door handles or the uh guys upside two upside down guys that are um almost like Alice in Wonderland sort of uh like yeah. the card the guards, the cards. That are, yeah that are cards um mm. and or the old dude that's got the bird on his head um mm-hmm. you know so wrinkled and craggly um, and I love the texture. It just feels so lived in. It fe- it really feels like a world that has been there way before she encounters it. Did you, when you saw this as a kid, how old were you? Uh, I don't know exactly when I sort of watched it, but I would say somewhere between five and ten from the first time, probably. Okay, yeah. So did it scare you at all? I don't remember being scared by it. I don't have a memory okay. of being scared by Labyrinth. Okay, yeah. but you just you just enjoyed it, like, from the get-go. Yeah. Because you wouldn't have even known about Bowie then, but maybe that just sort of planted the seed in your head. 
from well, an yeah, early that's age. right. Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. Yeah, um, you wouldn't be watching, you know, The Hunger at age five. I did not watch The Hunger at age five. That's true. <laughs> I didn't watch The Man Who Fell to Earth, um, which you get full frontal David Bowie nudity in that one. So, um, okay, yeah. wow, yeah. I, which is I why never. Go ahead. Well, the other thing I was going to say, just because people seem so hung up on it, and by mentioning it, I'm going to appear hung up on it, but. Yeah, the disparity Hung between up, Adam really okay. The, the disparity between what Bowie's got going on in his jodhpurs in Labyrinth <laughs> and what you see in the Man Who Fell to Earth, like definitely there was there was some imaginative costuming going on there. Mm. Anyway, so is this? Let's is move this on. We're bringing that... the tone of the podcast down too much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Je- Jennifer Connelly then. Jennifer Connelly sure. uh, was 15 years old, I believe, when mm. she made this. It's her debut. There is a very strange ballroom scene uh, that made me somewhat uncomfortable. Uh, but I suppose at the time it seemed very normal. Yeah. Uh, but do, do you find that there's any cringe when you watch this now? Or are you just still in the sort of bubble that it created for you originally? Yeah. Look, the relationship between Jareth, played by Bowie, who is about... 35 to 40 at the time and Jennifer mm-hmm. Connolly who was 15 certainly mm-hmm. is problematic there's some problematic aspects to that for sure uh, um, this is a this is a film about it's a coming of age film right so uh-huh. part of that is if you want to call that a sexual awakening or just a, an, an awareness I guess of um, of romance and love and mm. you know those ideas and and attraction so there's obviously mm. an attraction between Jareth and Sarah and certainly in that ballroom scene uh it, it's played upon in a in a way that is slightly uncomfortable or mm. a little yeah as we as we pointed out you know probably kind of problematic and i don't know that they would make a film with those actors at that age uh, like now? that now, for sure. Mm. Um, mm. So for sure, but look, it doesn't, it doesn't ruin the film for me. Um, no, it's, it's you just kind of have to songs. note it and kind of go, well, yeah. Yeah. The, it's the songs. And then the, uh, the uh, part where she's like, Oh, you have no power over me. I felt like that was actually the, if there was like a pivotal moment where there was some meaning there, I was like, Oh, that, that actually unfolded very well. Though yeah, I, for sure. I, I'm, I am intrigued by if it like you considering this a comfort film, mm. um, is it just because it's fun and sort of like takes you back or what, if you had to pinpoint exactly like when you watched it the other day and you felt sick and it made you feel better, mm. what is it? What is well, the, what is the, it's a combination of right. it's a combination of things. It's spending time with Bowie. It's, um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, look, it's a it's a coming of age film, and therefore it's a film about female empowerment. Sarah goes on this on this quest on this journey, and she comes out having grown and evolved as a person. Um, and I think mm-hmm. the really beautiful thing about this film is that it's saying, "Oh, you need to put away childish things, and you need to take responsibility for yourself." And she needs to take responsibility for finding her brother, but. Mm. By the time we get there, she's made friends. 
she's had all of these crazy adventures. She's met these wonderful characters who look and sound fantastic and are very funny. Um, I, I think there are a lot of great jokes and I think there are a lot of really funny characters. Like, for example, the, the rock, uh, she's walking through uh, some, a whole big bunch of rocks that have faces carved into them. And they're yeah. basically there to dissuade her. And they're sort of saying like, go back, turn back. And then hoggles with her and he's like, oh, shut up, you know, like, and, and then they get all kind of defensive and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. It's just, this, I'm just doing my job. You know, just little things like that. Um, little character, little character quirks of all of the weirdos that mm. inhabit this labyrinth like world um, mm -hmm. are, yeah, very, those, those are very comforting to me. Also, look, it's, as a film for kids, it's got everything you need. It's got slapstick. It's got sight gags. It's got both pee and fart jokes. So what more could you ask for as a kid, right? It's got the Adam seal of approval. Okay. It's got everything you need. And then it's got Bowie. It's got I mean, what, what can you ask for? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to keep all these things in mind because we're thinking about your through line, Adam. So when we get to this next film, which is for me, uh, very, very similar sure. in terms of its uh, setup is Spirited Away by Miyazaki. Can I just say one more thing about, about not about 2001. Um, uh, can I just say uh -huh. one, one more thing about um, Labyrinth, which is sure. um, the, the songs. Because that's yes. the other element. To, you know, it is kind of a musical fantasy. And I feel like they're, yes. not, they're not David Bowie's best songs and it wasn't his mm. best era musically. Um, but even me, like he's one of the greatest songwriters of the 20th century, even mediocre Bowie songs are better than most. And I think he got the assignment. Like he was, he needed to write catchy songs for kids. And I think he, like, he totally nailed it. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. <laughs> also, also, if I can just invoke my, uh, my Bowie reference book here, I just have a little quote, um, about what Bowie says about making labyrinth um okay good sorry you introduced the second uh film and now and you're I'm, pedaling drag back. I'm dragging us back i'm so sorry amy all right very the rules i'm mm -hmm. not going to do a bowie impression here because my bowie impression is terrible just as bad as my okay. american impression jim gave me the script which i found very amusing bowie explained at the time it's by terry jones of monty python and it has this kind of slightly inane insanity running through it when i read the script and saw that jim wanted to put music to it it just felt as though it could be really nice, funny thing to do. Of his role of Jareth, he suggested that one feels that he's rather reluctantly inherited the position of being Goblin King, as though he would really like to be, I don't know, down in Soho or something. And I think that he brings this kind of laconic, kind of can't be bothered sort of attitude a, a little bit to, to the role. You know, he's like, oh, uh -huh. God, do I really have to deal with this annoying, you know, uh, oh, 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 number one, all these goblins, but number two, oh, this girl and her brother, you know. But then he's kind of lured in and attracted to her as well. So anyway. Yes, I would say uh, he his character somewhat reminds me of Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven. Okay. As, as far as someone just uh, sort of being cool and walking in frame and um, eating and chilling and just being cool. Uh, and then leaving. 
So there's not like this intensity to them. There is sort of a laid back cool quality. Yes. yes. So the Absolutely. fact that he actually also saw this as that makes total sense. So I'm glad that you read that because that puts it into context. Cool. Okay, Adam. So Spirited Away is a uh, almost an identical plot structure. It, it is. is also Alice in Wonderland again. Ooh. It is another teenage girl, which you are not a teenage girl. So the fact that you're <laughs> the two <laughs> movies that you chose were both uh, where they sort of get th th thrust into different worlds and either have to grow up or, I mean, this is also coming of age too, uh, is very interesting to me. So talk about why. What what is going on in your in that brain of yours? How do you know I'm not a teenage girl, Amy? How do you know how I choose to identify? <laughs> no, look, I, I I identify as a as a dude in his forties. So um, yeah, you're not going to get away with that one. I think both of these films, um, and mm -hmm. we're starting to see a theme emerge here. Yes, they're, they're coming of age films. They are journeys. And I read them as feminist films. These these young female characters mm. are empowered, and they have gone on these on a journey, and they have um, it, it, you know evolved, learnt lessons, and they are better and stronger, and yeah, more empowered by the time they get to the to the end of this of these quests. And I like that. Um, How would you compare the two as far as the character development is concerned? Because I definitely saw a big difference between Sarah's and Chihiro's. Chihiro. I think Chihiro is a more likable character. Um, mm -hmm, for she's, sure. Although she's, she's kind of bratty at the beginning. She's a bit bratty at the beginning, but she's also, well, maybe that's where they sort of, both of them start out pretty bratty and then... <clears throat> by the time they've gone through these adventures, they're far mm. more self-possessed. Um, they've learned these lessons, but I mean, like Chihiro just, she finds it within herself. She just kind of buckles down and she just gets it done. And she, she commits to the world as well. She's like, okay, this is where I am now. So very, very basic plot. If you don't know the plot of Spirit of the Way, uh, Chihiro is moving to a new town with her parents uh, they stop in their car right near their new house and get distracted and then basically find themselves in a fantasy land. Her parents get turned into pigs by a witch called Yubaba and Chihiro spends the rest of the film trying to turn her parents back into humans and, um, yeah, learning a lot of lessons and making a lot of friends. So I summarise the plot of this one as one girl's coming of age at the hands of slave labor in a bathhouse, haphazardly aided by a bunch of spirits, frogs, a dragon disguised little boy, and some disembodied heads. I think haphazard was in both of your descriptions. Maybe. Okay. I am listening. It might be in my description for the third. You just have to wait. Okay, we'll have to wait and see. Okay, There's a so theme Adam. emerging here. Adam. Um, so in this example, it is different than the first one because the other one, the uh, character is trying to shirk responsibility by saying, please take my brother away. And this Ooh. one, I feel like her parents kind of deserved to be turned into pigs because they were acting like pigs. So you kind of get the sense of like, well, yeah, I mean, go ahead. Um, 
but then uh, she takes it upon herself and she takes it very seriously. Like she demands employment, a job, and uh, then gets her name taken away from her mm. and is given a different name, which is very uh, powerful symbolism. Yes. And then she meets um, very interesting characters along the way. So, uh, and then it's set to just such a beautiful score. The score in Miyazaki films is really what sort of the comfort part is what I understand the most. What I really like about the score in this one and across his filmography, um, Mm -hmm. and it's matched somewhat in the visuals, is that it's a world that is obviously it's Japanese anime and it's riffing on the iconography of anime and Japanese culture. But then there's uh, Miyazaki also has this, sort of fascination i suppose with european aesthetics as well and it's mm. yubaba's twin sisters who's i forget that character's name um her house is this little sort of european cottage um that's away from the japanese bathhouse and you kind of have this push and pull between east and west going on in the score but then also in the aesthetics of the world uh, which is really fascinating to me. And and I think it's this push and pull between the otherworldly and the familiar. And I think you can see that in Labyrinth as well. That's maybe where I find some comfort is that you have these, you have elements that you recognize, but there and there are also these other aspects that are fan- completely fantastical or that are just really, yeah, otherworldly or strange. Um, and it's sitting in that liminal space between the familiar and the otherworldly that I find really interesting. And yeah, I actually find it personally, I find it comforting. One of the other things so that I was, oh, sorry, you go. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, one of the other things that um, I really love about Spirited Away is that there are these moments of stillness and these, mo- these moments of quiet. When I was trying to think about what I was going to choose as comfort films, um, the last one was my, like, just immediately came to me. And that's probably the most disturbing uh, revelation to you based on your reaction to it, but we'll get to that. But when I was thinking about, well, what kinds of things are, are comforting to me? Stillness and quiet, I really love. And I've, um, in the last few years, really gotten into slow cinema, but I wasn't going to subject you to like a Simon Lang film or a James Benning film, make you watch like, you know, 10, 10 minute shots of like empty sky. Um, so I, I thought let's, let's keep it relatively contained to like traditional narrative storytelling. Cause there's more to talk about there. Um, but this mm. idea of stillness and quiet, there are moments. And I mean, you know, maybe you could um, compare Miyazaki to Ozu perhaps in, in that respect that there are just, you know, Ozu's pillow shots, for example, or there are just these moments where, Miyazaki will pause on the location or just a beautiful vista and just sit with it for a little while. And I find that incredibly comforting as well. Yeah. Like there's, there'll be like a shot of the ocean or the wind, or there's a lot of that, like um, flowers or a field or, Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. There is a lot of stillness to it. And that taps yeah. into the idea of this Japanese notion of um, mono no aware, which uh, is 
roughly sort of translated as the fleetingness of life or a sensitivity towards the ephemeral nature of things. Um, and I think that that's very much in Miyazaki. I mean, I think that's in a lot of Japanese cinema because that's part of their, you know, sort of culture. Um, mm -hmm. And I really love that the way that it's rendered here, there's a stillness, but then it also rubs up against these, you know, just totally fantastical visuals. And it's such an imaginative world, you know, the world mm -hmm. building. I think that's another thing that I find incredibly comforting as well is really great world building um, and having all of the elements of a, a story or where that, that story is located in terms of both the setting, but also the characters, who are the characters? Why are there three green disembodied heads rolling around, bumping into each other? What's that about? Why are there giant ducks walking around? Who is that weird spirit guy that has no face? And I don't yeah. know that there are necessarily great answers, logical answers. And so it's, it's that world building for the sake of almost through dream logic, perhaps. But there's definitely a structure as well. Like to both a of story these structure. movies, I would say. Yeah, there's a yeah. there's definitely a very distinct. It's not uh, one of those like vibe movie sort of situations where like there is there is dream logic that you have to sort of apply to board the wavelength, but it is mm. very detailed. Uh, I think, and it's not as opposed really to a hangout being, movie as such. No, no, because there's too much story. Yeah, although it is plot. very it is very episodic. Mm. And, it, and it did remind me, I mean, it's the kind of film that, uh, you know, sort of in my, in my later teenage years, you would just kind of, I don't know, you'd throw on as visuals at a party or you just kind of have it on in the background because it becomes part of the cultural lexicon. Everyone knows Spirited Away. It looks cool. It's got a cool vibe to it. So let's just kind of have it there sort of sitting in a corner and it's kind of keeping us company in a way. Um, I've definitely watched Spirited Away in that context in a number of instances. Does it have a deeper meaning for you as far as what it's saying? Like, did you feel, because there were a bunch of reviews that I read afterwards that were so deep about the, Zachary's was really good about the duality of, like, that there's two of everything and there's two two of a lot of things that are sort of flip sides of the same coin or the whole idea of, uh, loneliness, eating everything in sight and wanting to be filled, but then like never feeling satiated until someone has an act of kindness and then that's what does it. I mean, is there anything about it that deeply moves you or is it still sort of at that, at that kind of like surface level of just being something that you feel like is your friend who's, who you're just like, ah, like it's like that seeing an old friend feeling. It's definitely that, but yeah, that certainly there are some deeper themes there if you care to look into them. Um, mm -hmm. They're there if you want them, basically. Yeah. If you don't want them, then you can just look at the at the pretty visuals, right? Um, kind of like my neighbor Todoro. Sure. Like that one is more to me in his canon. Uh, if you want to say that for Ghibli, mm -hmm. uh, that that one is like way more kids movie. But sure. if you wanted to read more into it, you can. But it but it's kind of geared more toward, you know, 
a more basic level than like the wind rises or I think, Howl's moving castle. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that with spirited away, there is a lot of, I mean, look, just the, the journey that the character goes on, but even the, that symbolism, there's a lot of dealing with trauma, uh, the trauma of growing up, um, the trauma of trying to figure out who you are, uh, the trauma of not having your parents and then figuring out that you actually, you know, she becomes the parent in a way. So that, that's another form of duality, I suppose where mm. she becomes the one who's actually responsible. She has to take charge and become responsible for saving her parents. And right. yeah, that, 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 those binaries, I suppose, or that duality of inside us, there is a child and a parent. Um, you know, we can both be alone, but we can also find community or friendship or love or whatever it might be. And those things, those two things can coexist. We can be um, self-determined and self-reliant, but ultimately she goes on this journey with other characters. She brings other characters along and other characters help her um, in her quest. And the end, the whole thing of like, I can handle it as being the sort of, it, it, that's what it reminds me of Alice in Wonderland mm. is, is like at the end, she's ready for yes. reality. Yeah, for sure. out of the fantasy. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, Adam, we're going to move to the next one just because I know we have strong feelings. Capital sure. S, capital F. Yeah, yeah. Let's get into uh, it. it. <laughs> get stuck this into is, it, Amy. This is directed by Shirley Barrett from 1996. Love Serenade. I'm going to say it in, a, in my best Aussie impression there. Nice. Well done. Instead of Love Serenade, which is boring. Love Serenade. Sounds like lemonade uh, when you say it. Lemonade. Love serenade. Oh, but you like to say it like the song, right? Can you say it like the song, Adam? Love serenade. Anyway. Mm, very yeah. nice. Very nice. Uh, by Barry White. Right? Baz. Yeah. Oh, Baz. Oh, right. Yeah, Baz. Baz White. Baz White. Um, I so, think I, uh, I just feel I'm just sensing Amy that there's going to be a lot of riffing on Australianness in the in this particular uh, bit of the podcast, which is fine. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to hold myself back. I know that I have a lot of Aussies on Letterboxd that are friends of mine, uh, and I I just lovingly uh, think that the way that they say things is just fantastic. So it's hard for me to um, just not. It's okay. It's way. okay, Amy. Our entire sense of humor is based on you taking each other down a peg. So we're used to it. Mm. We're prepared for it. It's totally fine. You can make fun of our accents all you like. I mean, we hear yours it's... all the time. So, you know, <laughs> and we're, and we're constantly just kind of chuckling to ourselves. Oh, like, oh, man. Rolling how, our how eyes. How should pronounce that? <laughs> Actually, this okay, reminds so... me of something which which is Go a ahead. real bugbear of mine which is terrible mm. australian accents um by non-aussies in films like i think robert downey jr oh. thinks he's got a really great australian accent because he's done it in a couple of films now he did it in natural one killers and then he did it in tropic thunder and i think he thinks that he's nailed an aussie accent and no nah. no nah, mate who who has done the best job of that do, do you even have an example of someone There's... who is not 
who did a great job. Kate Winslet has done a really great job um, in a couple of films now, Holy Smoke and The Dressmaker. Holy Smoke? Yep. Holy Smoke oh, and yeah, The Dressmaker. The dressmaker. Yeah. I love The Dressmaker. That yep. is a great movie. That's a great hidden gem, actually. Mm. Um, at, yeah. Gillian mm. uh, Armstrong, fantastic Australian filmmaker. Um, yeah. And, uh, and Holy Smoke, Jane that... Campion. Yeah, Sorry, that's go ahead. right. Well, I mean, look, technically she's a Kiwi, but that's all right. She did. She's studying right. this. We won't she hold studied. her against her. Nah, we've we've claimed her. Yeah. That's fine. Um, okay. The other one I was going to say that actually got a lot of flack at the time, but I actually thought it was a really good accent. Is the Queen of Accents, Meryl Streep? Um, mm. In um, it was called a Cry in the Dark, but we know it as Evil Angels, um, which was based mm. on a true story about yeah dingo ate, my, dingo ate my baby yeah was, yeah i well, know yeah mm -hmm. don't you're yeah. not you're not gonna go there amy i'm not gonna go there you're not gonna I'm go not, there. i i have some dignity or not dignity but yeah. well you know. meryl streep went there and yeah. i actually thought she was really good but the interesting thing about that that which is not a character a real person lindy chamberlain um was grew up in uh new zealand it was either new zealand or south africa and so she had a mm. very slight you know, non-Aussie inflection to her Australian accent. And I think that's what people were railing on Meryl Streep for, like not getting the Aussie accent. But if you look at documentary footage of Lindy Chamberlain's interviews, I think Meryl mm -hmm. nailed it. Anyway. Awesome. But she all is, of the, she is the queen of accents. This, she is. And all of the accents yeah. in this film are 100% legit. <laughs> As in they're all Aussies. Certified. Yeah. Certified. Okay, so Certified. this is also, uh, besides the fact that it is very authentic, uh, it is also, like, tremendously female-driven. Uh, mm. You were talking about, I'm guessing that this is your through line, uh, but, but, like, you were talking about things being feminist. Uh, this is directed by a woman, written by a woman, edited by a woman. The cinematography is about, mm. by a woman. Uh, and then it's a film about women. So, I mean, yes. Um Although I suppose the, the point could be argued that it is a, a film that is about two women who are uh, so obsessed with a man that they talk about absolutely nothing else. Uh, but For the um, vast majority of the film, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> there was like a line that was like, it's the lowest, it made the lowest grade on the, on the, the Bechdel, Bechdel test. test. Is that Bechdel test. Yeah. Right. Um, because they really don't, discuss anything else except for fish it does so, technically uh, pass the bechdel test because there's a scene at the beginning yeah. where uh dimity played by miranda otto is telling vicky ann her older sister uh played by rebecca frith that she had this weird dream where there's a marshmallow inside her head that keeps getting bigger and bigger so they do mm. talk about that at the beginning of the film for one scene but then they spend mm. most of the rest of the film talking about Ken Sherry. Ken Sherry. Okay, so please, this one you may have to summarize just a tad, Adam, sure. because I don't think anyone will have, or a lot of people will not have heard of Love Sherry. Yeah, sure. Okay, so this one is one girl's coming of age and sexual awakening at the hands of Barry White and a creepy radio DJ, haphazardly aided by her sister and a country music-loving Chinese restaurateur. It so is... you did have haphazardly three times. Of course, of course. I okay. had to, yeah. Um, yeah, be consistent. I had to be consistent. So Love Serenade, oh, and here's my X-Rental DVD copy uh, from 
Perth's Perth's premier um, sort of art house uh, video store, Planet Video. You can't. Yeah, there you go. Um, I was about to say, where's the DVD? There it is. Yeah, okay. there it is. It fell out. Um, yeah, okay. when when Planet Vid- Video sadly closed down, uh, they sold off all of their old stock, and my wife bought me a copy of this. Um, four dollars, it says. Or well, it was four. It was four bucks. That was the rental, the weekly rental price. Oh. I'm, not, I'm not sure what she paid for the. I mean, it's it's very beaten up. It's yeah, yeah. I see that. It's it's had a lot of love, um, mm. much like Ken Sherry. Okay, so it's the story of Dimity and Vicky Ann Hurley, who live in the small <laughs> Victorian town of Sunray. Uh, their lives are turned upside down at the arrival in town, and next door, he literally moves in next door to them of Ken Sherry a radio DJ who is sort of like a Z grade celebrity. He's kind of had a career where he sort of flirted with some degree of success in broadcasting. And it's clearly all come crashing down for him in, uh, you know, alongside his three unsuccessful marriages. And so he comes to Sunray looking for something and he finds the Hurley sisters, um, and they proceed to become somewhat obsessed with him. They get sort of drawn into this love triangle. Um, and, yeah, uh, I mean, obviously spoilers are really important for the end of this film. Um, right. So we don't want to talk about where it goes. Uh, there is a sort of magic realist element to this in that Ken is arguably not as he seems. Um, yeah, there's something else going on with Ken. I I have to preface this by saying I had not ever heard of this film, but it's quite divisive, Adam. Uh, there are very strong opinions about this movie. Mm. Like people are either like very much in favor of it and think it's very quirky is the word that came up the most. Uh, it's not really a word that I love because it just makes me think of like, indie movies in the mid 2000s but um, quirky makes me feel like a film's trying too hard and i don't think love sarah okay. is trying too hard but i know right. what you mean but the, I know a what lot you mean. of people described it as quirky for sure. there are some um, odd elements to these characters and the story for sure well and she's called odd multiple times directly mm-hmm. the, the our lead yeah. uh but then also like people hate it uh so mm. to me what's interesting about it is that mm. you chose a comfort film that people have strong feelings and reactions to. Um, and at the, like, if you just summarize it or describe it, it mm. seems fairly straightforward. So what do you think it is about this movie that is in intense? Oh, what is intense about this film? Yeah. Well, or what do you yeah, think, well, what look, do you think you know, gets the- at people? Uh, I think the sexual politics, if read in a certain way, really gets at people. So, look, there's a love, it's mm-hmm. a love triangle between this creepy radio, radio DJ played incredibly by George Shevsov. It's such a fantastic performance. Whom you've met, right? Or you, that you, uh, see, you see him. Yeah, so I'm from Perth, or Bulu as we refer, refer to it, um, and so is George. And so I uh, would see him out at theatre shows, for example. I've never actually met him or spoken to him always kind of kept a, a bit of a fanboy's distance. But you could I mean, have. I could have walked up to him and said, 
Ken Sherry, I presume, but I but I didn't um, because mm. I'm sure he must have copped that so much. So um, yeah, anyway, I think he probably would have been very. I think that would have been kind of an honor, but I think what I heard from others is that he was kind of over it after a while. Like it happened ah, a lot in the late '90s, and then by the time I started to see him, it was probably like a decade later. And I think he was mm. like enough with the Ken Sherry already. Like, yes, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. Yes, it's an iconic performance. Fame. But you know, yeah, leave um, me alone. Go away. He's done other g'day, things mate. since then. And um, <laughs> did you say good day, mate? That's always a greet. That's always a greeting when you say hello. Sorry. Yeah. How do you say goodbye? S- see you later. Oh, mate or, or no? Nah. Well, you could always go no. full Aussie and say huru, but no one ever does that. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't possibly say something that silly. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. No, there's a, there is a reason why we don't say it. Um, this is a respectable podcast. So Adam, well, it was uh, till then now. tell me, let, <laughs> let's do the opposite. Why is it comforting? Why Forget it about com- the intensity. Sure. Why? C- please plead your case. Yeah. Okay. Now you're going to really start killing me, Amy. Why, mm. why do I find, find love serenade? Uh, comforting. Okay. Well, I grew Please up. Please enlighten in, us. Sure. I grew up in a in a country town similar to Sunray. Uh, it was in a completely different other different part of the country, and it didn't look landscape wise necessarily the same. But there are so many similarities. Like every Aussie country town has a fish and chip shop and a Chinese restaurant, and Ken Sherry doesn't eat fish, so he finds his way to the Chinese restaurant. So we have that um, element. Every uh, Aussie country town has an apex park, which is where Dimity and Vicky Ann meet for lunch every day. And it's a mm-hmm. totally rundown park with some rusty, a rusty swing set that's been there for 30 years and no one ever uses it and the kids never play there and it's completely overgrown with weeds um, and it's awful. But these um, – I kind of likened it a little bit because it's also, it's a, I think this is a beautifully shot film. Um, And Mandy Watkins, I think is her name. I've got the Mandy Walter, Walker, Mandy Walker. Uh, She shot um, Australia and she shot Elvis and she shot the live action Mulan. Um, Very capable cinematographer for Baz. Mm -hmm. Not Mulan, wasn't Mm -hmm. Baz, obviously. But um, it's gorgeously shot in widescreen. And you have these very, rundown quotidian Australian country town locations that are shot in such such a beautiful widescreen. It reminded me a little bit of the last picture show. Um in that yes. you have this yeah, it's a it's a small country town rendered really very cinematically. Um I love the use of colour in this film. To me this this film looks really beautiful. I love that there are there's a colour palette to each character. Um, Vicky Ann is a lot of pinks. Dimity is a lot of beiges. Ken Sherry is kind of browns. Um, and we haven't mentioned Albert, who Albert is my favorite, actually. Um, Albert the, Lee, the Albert, chef, Albert the, Lee, who runs the, the, the Chinese restaurant that Dimity works uh-huh. at, um, and which Ken uh-huh. Sherry frequents. Um, and Albert is, uh, his color palette is these sort of light blues. Um, so it's a beautiful looking film. Again, when I was thinking about what makes a film a comfort film for me, 
it's characters that mm-hmm. I love to spend time with. And I love to spend time with these characters, even Ken Sherry. I even love to spend time with Ken. So look. The- why, Adam? Okay. He's like, okay, t- tell us why. Because he is pretty loathsome he and is. despicable. And, and uh, you know, very uh, unapologetic for his behavior. Um, he is. He... Look, yes. Ken Sherry arrives in town. He's trying to escape something. He's trying to get away from something. And all of a sudden, um, he doesn't ask for the affections of these two women, but they kind of throw themselves at him. Um, with casseroles. With casseroles, absolutely. Um, and he was, it's almost like you can sense Ken kind of going, oh, I was trying to get away from this. Why not am I again? Being thr- not again. And he can't help himself. He can't help himself. Ugh. He is, you know, uh, and so he gets embroiled in this sort of this drama, this, this, um, you know, love triangle with, with Dimity and Vicky Ann. But what I, what I love about this film is I actually think that it has a lot of empathy for all of its characters and I've seen people sort of say, oh, it's quirky um, for the sake of it. And it's kind of looking down on these characters. Like it, it, it considers them to be, it just casts them as these weird oddballs and it's sort of making fun of them. I don't feel that at all. And I feel part of that is maybe cuts through to this Australian national identity where we consider ourselves outsiders anyway. And so when we see these stories of outsiders, um, like I actually identify with, with them. I, I'm not looking down at them. I'm not casting judgment on them. I actually feel like I share that oddness, that weirdness, that misshapenness that Dimity and Vicky Ann exhibit in interesting and different ways. Even the oddness and weirdness that Albert has. I, I love the scene where... They're back of house in the Chinese restaurant and Dimity mentions Vicky Ann, who Albert had a little uh, fling with and he gets all nostalgic and sort of teary and a bit melodramatic. And he starts singing Wichita Lineman, much to her just shock and dismay. Um, And he is so genuine in the way that he sings it. He's so invested and he's really living that moment. Um, singing Wichita Lineman because it just it's embodying everything for him that music can when you feel compelled. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Dimity just kind of rolls her eyes and has this just shudder of, oh, my God, this is just just awful. And so you have get these me characters, out of here. get me out of here, yeah. and you have this awkwardness where these characters kind of put themselves and each other in these awkward, odd, weird situations. And look, I... I'm not a complete weirdo in that there are, when it gets to the really pointy end of the love triangle and the sex scenes and that whole seduction element, I'm not sitting there going, oh, this is great. I feel so, you know, I don't necessarily feel comfortable in those moments. Uh Um, Uh I certainly do share a degree of discomfort because it is rendered in a very awkward way, uh, but intentionally so oh absolutely intentionally yeah Mm -hmm. um it's taking the film tonally where it needs to go but Mm -hmm. this idea of i guess if i can kind of bring it back to like australian cinema um because you know this was 
one of the in the 90s like it wasn't as well known as something like priscilla or amelia muriel's wedding for example but it's like it won the camera door at khan and it had had a certain degree of uh status it, it, certainly in australia i feel like in the 70s after the australian new wave it was all about these sort of grand narratives of nationhood um and sort of how our identity had been formed like through colonization and through our abhorrent relationship with indigenous australians and it was all about kind of big issues or it was rendered through these really sort of uh dreamlike personal stories like picnic at hanging rock or my brilliant career or things like that then in the 80s it was either about these sort of prestige films that were reckoning with australia's kind of colonial uh, history or it was about exploitation um we had the ausploitation boom of the 80s right um thanks to a um a, a tax write-off where basically you know investors could make heaps of money uh, by investing in these you know schlocky exploitation films and then in the in the 90s it was almost like a coming to terms with this sense of outsiderness and our isolation, our sense of isolation. We are so far flung. We are so far away, um, both from the motherland and from we, like through the nineties as a kid, like a teenager in the nineties, I always felt as though we had these twin beacons of cultural imperialism beaming down on us, one from the U S and one from the UK. You know, we had grunge and Britpop. We had Pulp Fiction and Trainspotting. You know, um, and in the 90s, we actually started to come to terms with our own identity, with who, with who we were, with that outsiderness, with that weirdness, with that oddness, and kind of claiming it. And I feel that films like Priscilla or Muriel's Wedding and Love Serenade certainly are about that. So I feel as though Shirley Barrett actually has empathy to spare for these characters even for Ken Sherry. I feel like she actually has an incredibly, um, yeah, I feel like she, she has a sense of humanity and, and empathy. Ken's, Ken's on a journey, man. You know, that's why, that's why he, because um, uh, uh, he's a radio, radio DJ. And so at one point he actually recites uh, Desiderata, which is this sort of completely hackneyed 70s sort of new agey, uh lengthy poem and i think he he recites most of it and it and it taps into this kind of and you know he does tai chi in his backyard and um in an awful tracksuit and uh you know he's on this journey of self-discovery um and ultimately where the film goes because again I'm not wanting to spoil it but mm -hmm. all three of these films that i've chosen are films in my opinion of female empowerment there are story they are stories where women go on, or, or girls go on journeys learn lessons and actually learn uh lessons of yeah empowerment and self-reliance and vicky ann and dimity both by the end of the film have realized they don't need ken sherry and they're better off without him and so yeah so what are the so for you mm. for you Adam yeah what is comforting about female empowerment 
Like what, what is it that if that's the theme and mm. that's the thing that, that is your through line. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is it, is it just, an, is it just empowerment in general or, or is it specifically like that these are oddballs? Like, or are they like, um, coming into a world that is somewhat hostile or um, difficult to navigate and then they come out in the end, is that what's comforting to you? That it's like if you came from a background where you feel like on the other end of the earth, then maybe it's that sense of coming out on the other side and being okay with yourself. Yeah. I think so. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's yeah. all kind of rolled into one. I mean, look, I think the fact that I chose three female-centric films was, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I consider myself a feminist and I like to see stories of mm. female empowerment. That, to me, it didn't necessarily have a strong sort of personal connection. It was just sort of the way that it kind of rolled out. Um, yes. I mean, look, we can we can spend another hour psychoanalyzing this if you want to. I Amy. know. But I no. don't know that it's Adam, necessarily. I, no, I just think it's. I just think it's very interesting because it sort of comes. It comes like randomly, where it's like, you know, the the that I'll just say, okay, pick three films that you find as X, like three hidden gems or midnight movies or what have you. Mm. But I do, I do find that it just ends up saying a lot more about the person. Sure. Than it does about the films. Well, I so, guess. Uh, yeah. I guess if we can take the, the, that that feminist angle, right? Um, it that it's about uh, feminism is about equality. It's about empowerment. It's about everyone having the means to. It's about self determination, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so that can be that could be specifically feminist, or it could just be about self determination for anyone for any outsider mm -hmm. any weirdo anyone who considers themselves to have been yeah on the outside or have have had that been been um tagged with that otherness label i suppose mm -hmm. yeah yeah so well i'm not i'm not going to get into too much about my um beef because it's so opposite yours mm. that i f almost feel like I almost feel like we watched just completely different films yeah. because to me, love serenade serenade is very much like about rage and uh, everything's sort of boiling up, boiling up, boiling up. And then it just, it just can't take it anymore and explodes. Mm -hmm. And so, but perhaps that is because of where I'm sitting with the characters. Like I don't identify with their, with their, um, on the fringe-ness as much as I do identify with the sort of jiltedness of it. Mm. And like that, you know, uh, that type of guy who he is, uh, I, I relate to more in that vein. So there's definitely a lot in here that could, kind of hit a nerve i feel like we definitely other than have, it just being a fun comedy i think we have different readings of this film and i totally appreciate and understand your reading of it 
Um, I don't know whether mm. my reading holds any weight with you or uh, whether you oh, think it's uh, whether you think it's nonsense. But um, yeah, <laughs> no. I, ge- I guess that's why I can see this film, which yeah, others see and you certainly see as like there's a real intensity to this film for you mm-hmm. um, and a darkness. Sure. Like, like it, it has like ugly emotions, mm. but I think that that's good. I, I don't see that as a bad thing. It's just that it's, uh, it makes people feel you kind of have to identify that in yourself when it comes up and it sort of confronts you with it. Mm. But I think that Shirley Barrett did a great job in demonstrating a feeling that I don't normally see, which is the sort of woman scorned, you know, Shakespearean idea uh, of like, you know, don't piss off the wrong woman or any woman because yeah, you'll pay for it sort of thing. And, and it's got that in a very visceral way. I felt that felt personal to me too. Like it didn't seem like it was just out of nowhere or coincidence. It felt like Shirley was saying something there. Yeah. Yeah. Look, they're both, both Vicky Ann and, and Dimity are at the beginning of the film. I think we're meant to feel like they're living in this small country town. Maybe they don't have a lot of agency. Right, they're just one's a hairdresser, or the other lives in works in a Chinese restaurant. They're still living together in the family home. Clearly, their parents have passed. There's just little details like there's a wheelchair just sort of sitting in their lounge room, and there's mm-hmm. no explanation. Yeah. Um, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love Albert's house as well. But anyway, um, just yeah, beautiful set design. But they they have claimed agency by the end, and. Yes, they've claimed agency by they've been, um, you know, they've gone through this awful experience with Ken and they've, but they've learnt self-reliance. They've learnt that that they don't need Ken, right? And yeah, I don't necessarily see the rage as much. I mean, look, you know, if I were to flip it back on myself, I've had a few Ken Sherry's in my life. Um, you know, they were, they were women, they weren't men, but you know, I think we, we can certainly relate to that. Good point. You know, that, yeah, you could flip it. That, that, yeah. I mean, look, you know, Dimity going and buying that, that helium balloon that says, I love you and taking it to Ken and, you know, basically proclaiming her, her her love to him and him basically just turning his nose up and going, Oh God, I don't need this noise, you know? Yes. And And like love is about freedom. And that, like, things shouldn't be taken so seriously. And by the way, like, I'm going to go see your sister. Yeah. Yeah. That that was just a very uh, – that's a very real moment. Totally. That I don't think is just accidental. Mm-hmm. No, definitely no. not. Um, and, yeah, mm-hmm. look, there are some really, as you say, some really intense emotions in this film. Absolutely. Um, I also love that they're delivered, for the most part – in there's there's kind of a deadpan to a lot of it the 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 mm. performances are pretty muted but then they there are these extreme spikes where you know Vicky Ann in particular will really kind of you know the, the the intensity really really peaks and then it drops back down again 
there's that um i love the way she says her sister's name it's almost like she uses her sister's name as uh an insult you know dimity dimity you know it's like this pestering hectoring kind of she's like her sister is is lesser than um and yeah so there are these it's a it's a pretty like dramatically muted until these real extreme sort of moments, these roller coaster sort of moments, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want everyone to see it just so that I can get the, all the nuance in there as far as people's reactions, but just to wrap it up, Adam, mm. we've got labyrinth, we've got spirited away and we've got love serenade as your comfort films. Uh, I believe that, Probably uh, most people have seen Labyrinth. A lot of people have seen Spirited Away. But check out Love Serenade. Write a review of it. Even like you should just link it to me so that I can read it. Because I, this one was intriguing to me. It made me think. I have been thinking about it for several days. And um, I'm I'm grateful that Adam picked something with a little bit of meat on it too. That wasn't just pure enjoyment so thank you for that adam oh thank you well thank you for the opportunity amy i mean it sounds like i i picked some films that were uh, all three were a little bit prickly in in a certain way but hey um <laughs> yeah you know the, the word discomfort also contains the word comfort uh-huh so <laughs> so discomfort discomforting can also be comforting in well a i guess that's sort of kind way. of what i've been getting at with all three of these films yeah. is that the, the discomfort yeah. and comfort sort of live alongside each other right they sort of rub up against one another um the I duality was, the duality exactly yeah look i was never gonna pick you know a disney film or uh you know <laughs> harry potter or you know like those, those kind of traditionally the, the the films that people kind of consider you know, they're sort of the big Hollywood sort of staples. Classics. Classics. Yeah. You know, I was never going to pick mm-hmm. that stuff. That's just not my tastes. Um, so, yeah, whether you agree that these films are, com- are comforting or not, um, I think that there are some elements in them that are hopefully enriching. Yes, I think they are. Yeah. So check them out. Adam, I have never done this or felt compelled to do this, but since you are a person who has listened to every single one of my episodes in order, you, uh, in order, will you do me the honor of closing this out with my, with my ending line? Oh my goodness. What an honor. What an honor. You're Pete Holmes. Or we can here, do it Amy. together. All right. Sure. You want to do it together? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it you together. Ready? All right. So do we, are we going to count in? Yeah. So there three, three, two, one. Two, one. All right, all right, and then we'll on. say, we'll see. Yeah. All right. Cool. I have, I count three. And, oh, oh, you, you count. Okay. It's your podcast. You count. <laughs> And then we'll say it together. Okay, ready? Yeah. Three, two, one. See you at the the movies. movies.